Chapter Sixteen of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Sixteen How the King's Court Feasted in Calais Castle. It was a bright, sunshiny morning when Nigel found himself at last able to leave his turret chamber and to walk upon the rampart of the castle. There was a brisk northern wind, heavy and wet with the salt of the sea, and he felt, as he turned his face to it, fresh life and strength surging in his blood and bracing his limbs. He took his hand from Aylward's supporting arm and stood with his cap off, leaning on the rampart and breathing in the cool, strong air. Far off upon the distant skyline, half hidden by the heave of the waves, was the low white fringe of cliffs which skirted England. Between him and them lay the broad blue channel, seamed and flecked with flashing foam, for a sharp sea was running, and the few ships in sight were labouring heavily. Nigel's eyes traversed the widespread view, rejoicing in the change from the grey wall of his cramped chamber. Finally, they settled upon a strange object at his very feet. It was a long, trumpet-shaped engine of leather and iron, bolted into a rude wooden stand and fitted with wheels. Beside it lay a heap of metal slugs and lumps of stone. The end of the machine was raised and pointed over the battlement. Behind it stood an iron box, which Nigel opened. It was filled with a black, coarse powder, like gritty charcoal. "'By St. Paul,' said he, passing his hands over the engine, "'I have heard men talk of these things, but never before have I seen one. "'It is none other than one of those wondrous new-made bombards.' "'In sooth, it is even as you say,' Aylward answered, "'looking at it with contempt and dislike in his face. "'I have seen them here upon the ramparts, "'and have also exchanged a buffet or two with him who had charge of them. "'He was Jack fool enough to think that with this leather pipe— he could outshoot the best archer in Christendom. I lent him a cuff on the ear that laid him across his foolish engine. It is a fearsome thing, said Nigel, who had stooped to examine it. We live in strange times when such things can be made. It is loosed by fire, is it not, which springs from the black dust? By my hilt, fair sir, I know not, and yet I call to mind that ere we fell out this foolish bombardman did say something of the matter. The fire-dust is within, and so also is the ball. Then you take more dust from this iron box, and place it at the hole at the farther end. So, now it is ready. I have never seen one fired, but I wot that this one could be fired now. It makes a strange sound, Archer, does it not? said Nigel wistfully. So I have heard, Fester, even as the bow twangs, so it also has a sound when you loose it. There is no one to hear since we are alone upon the rampart, nor can it do scathe since it points to sea. I pray you to loose it, and I will listen to the sound. He bent over the bombard with an attentive ear, while Aylward, stooping his earnest brown face over the touch-hole, scraped away diligently with a flint and steel. A moment later both he and Nigel were seated some distance off upon the ground, while amid the roar of the discharge the thick cloud of smoke they had a vision of the long black snake-like engine shooting back upon the recoil. 
For a minute or more they were struck motionless with astonishment, while the reverberations died away and the smoke wreaths curled slowly up to the blue heavens. "'Good lack!' cried Nigel at last, picking himself up and looking round him. "'Good lack, and heaven be my aid! I thank the Virgin that all stands as it did before. I thought that the castle had fallen.' "'Such a bull's bellow I have never heard!' cried Aylward, rubbing his injured limbs. One could hear it from Frencham Pond to Guildford Castle. I would not touch one again, not for a hide of the best land in Putnam. "'It may fare ill with your own hide, Archer, if you do,' said an angry voice behind them. Chandos had stepped from the open door of the corner turret, and stood looking at them with a harsh gaze. Presently, as the matter was made clear to him, his face relaxed into a smile. "'Hasten to the warden, Archer, and tell him how it befell. You will have the castle and town in arms.' I know not what the king may think of so sudden an alarm. And you, Nigel, how in the name of the saints came you to play the child like this? I knew not its power, fair lord. By my soul, Nigel, I think that none of us know its power. I can see the day when all that we delight in, the splendour and glory of war, may all go down before that which beats through the plate of steel as easily as the leathern jacket. I have bestrode my war-horse in my armour, and have looked down at the sooty, smoky bombardsman beside me and I have thought that perhaps I was the last of the old, and he the first of the new. That there would come a time when he and his engines would sweep you and me and the rest of us from the field. But not yet, I trust, honoured sir. No, not yet, Nigel. You were still in time to win your spurs, even as your fathers did. How is your strength? I am ready for any task, my good and honoured lord. It is well, for work awaits us. Good work, pressing work, work of peril and of honour. Your eyes shine and your face flushes, Nigel. I live my own youth over again as I look at you. Know, then, that though there is truce with the French here, there is not truce in Brittany, where the houses of Blois and of Montfort still struggle for the dukedom. Half Brittany fights for one, and half for the other. The French have taken up the cause of Blois, and we of Montfort. And it is such a war that many a great leader, such as Sir Walter Manny, has first earned his name there. Of the late, the war has gone against us, and the bloody hands of Rohans, of Gaptooth Beaumanoir, of Oliver the Flesher, and others have been heavy upon our people. The last tidings have been of disaster, and the king's soul is dark with wrath, for that his friend and comrade, Gilles de Saint-Paul, has been done to death in the castle of La Bruyniere. He will send succours to the country, and we go at their head. How like you that, Nigel? My honoured lord, what could I ask for better? Then have your harness ready, for we start within the week. Our path by land is blocked by the French, and we go by sea. This night the king gives a banquet, ere he returns to England, and your place is behind my chair. Be in my chamber that you may help me to dress, and so we will to the hall together. With satin and with samite, with velvet and with fur, the noble Chandos was dressed for the king's feast, and Nigel, too, had donned his best silk jupon, faced with the five scarlet roses, that he might wait upon him. In the great hall of Calais Castle the tables were set, a high table for the lords, a second one for the less distinguished knights, and a third at which the squires might feast when their masters were seated. Never had Nigel in his simple life at Tilford pictured a scene of such pomp and wondrous luxury. The grim grey walls were covered from ceiling to floor with priceless tapestry of Arras, where hart, hounds, and huntsmen circled the great hall 
with one long living image of the chase. Over the principal table drooped a line of banners, and beneath them rows of emblazoned shields upon the wall carried the arms of the high nobleman who sat beneath. The red light of cressets and of torches burned upon the badges of the great captains of England. The lions and lilies shone over the high dorsoret chair in the centre, and the same august device, marked with the cadency label, indicated the seat of the prince, while glowing to right and to left were the long lines of noble insignia, honoured in peace and terrible in war. There shone the golden sable of Manny, the engrailed cross of Suffolk, the red chevron of Stafford, the scarlet and gold of Audley, the blue lion rampant of the Percys, the silver swallows of Arundel, the red roebuck of the Montacutes, the star of the De Veres, the silver scallops of Russell, the purple lion of De Lacy, and the black crosses of Clinton. A friendly squire at Nigel's elbow whispered the names of the famous warriors beneath. "'You are young Loring of Tilford, the squire of Chandos, are you not?' said he. "'My name is Delves, and I come from Doddington in Cheshire. "'I am the squire of Sir James Audley, yonder round-backed man, with the dark face and close-cropped beard, who had the Saracen head as a crest above him.' "'I have heard of him as a man of great valour,' said Nigel, gazing at him with interest. "'Indeed you may well say so, Master Loring. He is the bravest knight in England, and in Christendom also, as I believe.' No man hath done such deeds of valour. Nigel looked at his new acquaintance with hope in his eyes. You speak as it becomes you to speak when you uphold your own master, said he. For the same reason, Master Delves, and in no spirit of ill-will to you, it behoves me to tell you that he is not to be compared in name or fame with the noble knight on whom I wait. Should you hold otherwise, then surely we can debate the matter, in whatever way or time may please you best. Delves smiled good-humouredly. Hey! Be not so hot, said he. Had you upheld any other knight, save perhaps Sir Walter Manny, I had taken you at your word, and your master or mine would have had place for a new squire. But indeed it is only truth that no knight is second to Chandos, nor would I draw my sword to lower his pride of place. Ah, Sir James's cup is low, I must see to it. He darted off, a flagon of Gascony in his hand. The king hath had good news to-night, he continued when he returned. I have not seen him in so merry a mind since the night when we took the Frenchman, and he laid his pearl chaplet upon the head of de Ribaumont. See how he laughs, and the prince also. That laugh bodes someone little good, or I am the more mistaken. Have a care, Sir John's plate is empty. It was Nigel's turn to dart away, but ever in the intervals he returned to the corner, whence he could look down the hall and listen to the words of the older squire. Delves was a short, thick-set man, past middle age, weather-beaten and scarred, with a rough manner and bearing which showed that he was more at his ease in a tent than a hall. But ten years of service had taught him much, and Nigel listened eagerly to his talk. "'Indeed the king hath some good tidings,' he continued. "'See now he has whispered it to Chandos, and to Manny. Manny spreads it on to Sir Reginald Cobham, and he to Robert Knowles, each smiling like the devil over a friar.' "'Which is Sir Robert Knowles?' asked Nigel, with interest. "'I have heard much of him and his deeds.' "'He is the tall, hard-faced man in yellow silk, "'he with the hairless cheeks and the split lip. "'He is little older than yourself, "'and his father was a cobbler in Chester, "'yet he has already won the golden spurs. "'See how he dabs his great hand in the dish "'and hands forth the gobbets? "'He is more used to a camp-kettle than a silver plate. "'The big man with a black beard is Sir Bartholomew Burgesh, 
whose brother is the abbot of Bewley. Oh, haste, haste, for the boar's head is come and the plate's to be cleaned. The table manners of our ancestors at this period would have furnished to the modern eye the strangest mixture of luxury and of barbarism. Forks were still unknown, and the courtesy fingers, the index and the middle of the left hand, took their place. To use any others was accounted the worst of manners. A crowd of dogs lay among the rushes, growling at each other, and quarrelling over the gnawed bones which were thrown to them by the feasters. A slice of coarse bread served usually as a plate, but the king's own high table was provided with silver platters, which were wiped by the squire or page after each course. On the other hand, the table linen was costly, and the courses, served with a pomp and dignity now unknown, comprised such a variety of dishes, and such complex marvels of cookery, as no modern banquet could show. Besides all our domestic animals, and every kind of game, such strange delicacies as hedgehogs, bustards, porpoises, squirrels, bitterns and cranes lent variety to the feast. Each new course, heralded by a flourish of silver trumpets, was borne in by liveried servants, walking two and two, with rubicund marshals strutting in front and behind, bearing white wands in their hands, not only as badges of their office, but also as weapons with which to repel any impertinent inroad upon the dishes in the journey from the kitchen to the hall. Boar's heads, enarmed and adored with gilt tusks and flaming mouths, were followed by wondrous pasties, moulded to the shape of ships, castles, and other devices, with sugar seamen or soldiers who lost their own bodies in the fruitless defence against the hungry attack. Finally came the great Neff, a silver vessel upon wheels, laden with fruit and sweetmeats, which rolled with its luscious cargo down the line of guests. Flagons of Gascony, of Rhine wine, of Canary, and of Rochelle were held in readiness by the attendants. But the age, though luxurious, was not drunken, and the sober habits of the Norman had happily prevailed over the license of those Saxon banquets where no guest might walk from the table without a slur upon his host. Honour and hardihood go ill with a shaking hand or a blurred eye. Whilst wine, fruit, and spices were handed round the high tables, the squires had been served in turn at the further end of the hall. Meanwhile, round the king, there had gathered a group of statesmen and soldiers, talking eagerly among themselves. The Earl of Stafford, the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Arundel, Lord Beauchamp, and Lord Neville were assembled at the back of his chair, with Lord Percy and Lord Mowbray at either side. The little group blazed with gold chains and jewelled chaplets, flame-coloured poltocks and purple tunics. Of a sudden the King said something over his shoulder to Sir William de Packington, the herald, who advanced and stood by the royal chair. He was a tall and noble-featured man, with long grizzled beard which rippled down to the gold-linked belt girdling his many-coloured tabard. On his head he had placed the heraldic beret cap, which bespoke his dignity, and he slowly raised his white wand high in the air, while a great hush fell upon the hall. "'My lords of England,' said he, "'knight bannerets, knights, squires, and all others here present of gentle birth and coat-armour, know that your dread and sovereign lord, Edward, King of England and of France, bids me give you greeting, and commands you to come hither, that he may have speech with you. In an instant the tables were deserted, and the whole company had clustered in front of the king's chair. Those who had sat on either side of him crowded inward, so that his tall dark figure, 
upreared itself amid the dense circle of his guests. With a flush upon his olive cheeks, and with pride smouldering in his dark eyes, he looked round him at the eager faces of the men who had been his comrades from Slui and Cadsand to Cressy and Calais. They caught fire from that warlike gleam in his masterful gaze, and a sudden wild, fierce shout pealed up to the vaulted ceiling, a soldierly thanks for what was past, and a promise for what was to come. The king's teeth gleamed in a quick smile, and his large white hand played with a jewelled dagger in his belt. "'By the splendour of God,' he said, in a loud, clear voice, "'I have little doubt that you will rejoice with me this night, for such tidings have come to my ears as may well bring joy to every one of you. You know well that our ships have suffered great scathe from the Spaniards, who for many years have slain without grace or ruth all of my people who have fallen into their cruel hands. Of late they have sent their ships into Flanders, and thirty great cogs and galleys lie now at Slui, well filled with archers and men-at-arms, and ready in all ways for battle. I have it to-day from a sure hand that, having taken their merchandise aboard, these ships will sail upon the next Sunday, and will make their way through our narrow sea. We have for a great time been long-suffering to these people, for which they have done us many contraries and despites, growing ever more arrogant as we grow more patient. It is in my mind, therefore, that we hie us to-morrow to Winchelsea, where we have twenty ships, and make ready to sally out upon them as they pass. May God and St. George defend the right! A second shout, far louder and fiercer than the first, came like a thunderclap after the king's words. It was the bay of a fierce pack to their trusted huntsman. Edward laughed again as he looked round at the gleaming eyes, the waving arms, and the flushed, joyful faces of his liegemen. "'Who hath fought against these Spaniards?' he asked. "'Is there any one here who can tell us what manner of men they be?' A dozen hands went up into the air, but the king turned to the Earl of Suffolk at his elbow. "'You have fought them, Thomas,' said he. "'Yes, sire. I was in the great sea-fight eight years ago at the island of Guernsey, when Lord Lewis of Spain held the sea against the Earl of Pembroke.' "'How found you them, Thomas?' "'Very excellent people, sire. No man could ask for better. On every ship they have a hundred crossbowmen of Genoa, the best in the world, and their spearmen are also very hardy men.' They would throw great cantles of iron from the tops of their masts, and many of our people met their death through it. If we can bar their way in the narrow sea, then there will be much hope of honour for all of us. "'Your words are very welcome, Thomas,' said the king, "'and I make no doubt that they will show themselves to be very worthy of what we prepare for them. To you I give a ship, and that you may have the handling of it. You also, my dear son, shall have a ship, that ever more honour be thine.' "'I thank you, my fair and sweet father,' said the prince, with joy flushing his handsome boyish face. "'The leading ship shall be mine. But you shall have one, Walter Manny, and you, Stafford, and you, Arundel, and you, Audley, and you, Sir Thomas Holland, and you, Brockas, and you, Barclay, and you, Reginald. The rest shall be awarded at Winchelsea, whither we sail to-morrow. Nay, John, why do you pluck so at my sleeve?' Chandos was leaning forward with an anxious face. "'Surely, my honoured lord, I have not served you so long and so faithfully that you should forget me now. Is there then no ship for me?' The king smiled, but shook his head. "'Nay, John, have I not given you two hundred archers and a hundred men-at-arms to take with you into Brittany? I trust that your ships will be lying in St. Malo Bay ere the Spaniards are abreast of Winchelsea. What more would you have, old war-dog? Wouldst be in two battles at once?' 
I would be at your side, my liege, when the lion banner is in the wind once more. I have ever been there. Why should you cast me now? I ask little, dear lord, a galley, a ballinger, even a pinnace, so that I may only be there. Nay, John, you shall come. I cannot find it in my heart to say you nay. I will find you a place in my own ship, that you may indeed be by my side. Chandos stooped and kissed the king's hand. My squire? he asked. The king's brows knotted into a frown. Nay, let him go to Brittany with the others, said he harshly. I wonder, John, that you should bring back to my memory this youth whose pertness is too fresh that I should forget it. But someone must go to Brittany in your stead, for the matter presses, and our people are hard put to it to hold their own. He cast his eyes over the assembly, and they rested upon the stern features of Sir Robert Knowles. Sir Robert, he said, though you are young in years, you are already old in war, and I have heard that you are as prudent in council as you are valiant in the field. To you I commit the charge of this venture to Brittany in place of Sir John Chandos, who will follow thither when our work has been done upon the waters. Three ships lie in Calais-Port, and three hundred men are ready to your hand. Sir John will tell you what our mind is in the matter. And now, my friends and good comrades, you will haste you each to his own quarters, and you will make swiftly such preparations as are needful. For as God is my aid, I will sail with you to Winchelsea to-morrow. Beckoning to Chandos, Manny and a few of his chosen leaders, the king led them away to an inner chamber, where they might discuss the plans for the future. At the same time the assembly broke up, the knights in silence and dignity, the squires in mirth and noise, but all joyful at heart for the thought of the great days which lay before them. End of chapter 16